lot of you have maybe heard about CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, but what is it like to actually run an operational area in that organization? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. Listen to, to Canadian Intelligence, eh? I've said on many occasions, I spent 15 years with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS, and had a great career there. I was an analyst, a strategic analyst, and got to meet a lot of great people who worked in the operational areas. I consider myself very much a, a team player in that regard. But I never actually worked at the coal face as an investigator, i.e. a human source recruiter, person running operations. And I think Canadians don't have a really good idea as to what this is all about. So in order to get, shed some more light on this particular aspect of the organization, I brought an old friend of mine, Dan Fawnen, who was with CSIS for a very long time. And we're going to walk through what it was like to work for an organization of that size. So Dan, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Good morning, Phil. Thanks for having me. Walk my listeners through, first of all, Dan, how you end up in CSIS in the first place. Well, I'm a, uh, I'm a born and raised Montreal boy, and uh, I was in the military as a reserve officer in the, at the end of university. I worked full-time uh, for a few years with the military, but I had been fascinated with the idea of uh, service uh, or the concept of the service since a very young age, and I applied to the RCMP when I was in, uh, when I was in college and then university, and when I was going through my boards to get to the RCMP, it was 1984. And at my final board, uh, they, well, they asked me what I'd like to do. And I was talking about the security service because I read a couple of books. And they looked at uh, each other, the board members, and said, uh, I think you got the wrong organization. And <laughs> they, uh, they had told me about the creation of the service that was imminent. And uh, so I waited. Uh, I waited till the organization was established. I finished my university degree. I uh, worked for a little bit of time, full time, and then uh, joined the service in 1990. So I'm assuming that like, like most intelligence officers or IOs, you went through a variety of positions with CSIS over the years. You ended up actually, before you retired, as the Director General for Toronto Region. Now, just for my listeners' benefit, CSIS, of course, is headquartered in Ottawa, but it has regional offices right across the country where the actual intelligence investigations take place. So what was it like being the Director General of, of Toronto Region, which is by far the largest operational office that CSIS has? Uh, it was uh, fantastic. It was an honor uh, and almost always a pleasure. And I won't say it was always a pleasure because we had some tough days at that office. As you said, uh, Toronto was the largest domestic office that the service has um, with uh, a population, an employee population well into the hundreds, responsible for a population uh, of Canadians numbering at around 8 million, responsible for the, the greater Toronto area and southwest Ontario. So it was a large area. And it is uh, it is a wonderful place to work because it is probably also the one of the busiest places in the organization to work. And I'd been in Toronto a couple of times. I'd been in Toronto in the early 90s as a young officer and then uh, went off to various other postings domestically and abroad. When I came back to Toronto, I, I thought I had won the lottery. Uh, it's a great crowd to work with. And uh, the joke used to be in Toronto, if you are not busy in Toronto, if you are bored, then you are doing something terribly wrong, because uh, Toronto had uh, the opportunity to look at uh, virtually every threat Canada faces and, and conduct meaningful operations to, to counter those threats. So just that alone made coming to work every day exciting and interesting, and, and working with the people down there, this was fantastic, very high energy group in a very dynamic city, a dynamic region, in fact. 
Um, so we were uh, we were a busy lot uh, with some tough days. You know, we, we we went through a number of crises, like a number of near crises that occurred. I think of the Strathroy uh, the Strathroy uh, incident where uh, Aaron Driver uh, oh, of wanted to commit a terrorist attack, and, and we were at the we were at the epicenter of that one with law enforcement, and we had a number of those types of operations, and those days made it worthwhile because you know we we help protect Canadians, and I think when, when members of the organization look back on their careers and they think about the bureaucracy and the usual thing that you get in organizations, um, they have to look at. Also, what impact they had, and I can tell you with hand on heart that members of the service, throughout the service, and I'll say particularly because my heart's in Toronto, uh, particularly in Toronto region, they can say uh, with hand on heart that they had great impact on protecting Canadians. Hang on a second, Dan. You just said that if you're not busy, <clears throat> you're doing something wrong. Now, you're talking about a security intelligence service that's investigating pre- you know, potential acts of terrorism, uh, foreign espionage by people outside of Canada, perhaps foreign interference, even in the worst case scenario, subversion. Isn't that kind of an oxymoron? <laughs> Do you really want a security service to be busy? Does it, doesn't that mean that there's a lot of stuff going wrong? Well, um, I suppose, you know, when you, when you talk to soldiers, soldiers are at their happiest when they're actually deployed in operations uh, because they're, they're doing what they're trained to do. They don't wish it upon anybody, but they're glad to answer the call. And I think the service is very similar. Um, a friend of mine once you know, commented that um, in, in our organization, we didn't do enough training. So sometimes you know, our level of professionalism uh, in certain new areas was lacking until we got our sea legs. And my comment back was, well, that's because we're always in operations. We're always in the fight. And uh, so people, you know, particularly at the regional level, then from the day they land, uh, they're busy. And they wear crazy hours and a lot of nights and weekends. And I always tell people who are interested in thinking about a career in the service, I said, are you prepared for an unusual life? <laughs> and it's not James Bond. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of preparation, a lot of planning that goes into everything that we do. But uh, in the end, you're, you're going out and you're doing work that means something to somebody. And that, uh, if you want to use the term clients of intelligence, that people are of intelligence, people are relying on the information that we provide in order to make uh, policy decisions or, in some cases, sharing information with law enforcement who subsequently decide to conduct criminal investigations. So the collection, analysis, and, and dissemination of information becomes critically important to uh, various partners. So places like Toronto, where we were always in it, um, I think the challenge there became uh, triage and prioritization. We were constantly prioritizing and reprioritizing where we were going to allocate resources. Um, and I'd say I would like to say that uh, most times we got it right. And you know, an old an old senior manager once said. Um, the bad guys uh, only have to be right once. Exactly. They have to be right every time. Exactly. I'm glad you raised the whole James Bond thing, Dan, because I want to ask you a question. A recent poll showed that somewhere around 30% of Canadians had any idea what CSIS really was. And I think it was 2% knew what CSE, Communication Security Establishment, where I used to work, uh, what is, was all about. If you were to sit down with an average Canadian, what do you think, that person should know. What, what message would you want to convey to the average Canadian about what the security service is, what it does, why we have it, and why it's important? So I've met you know, many hundreds of Canadians, if not thousands of Canadians over, over my career, and have had to explain on, on many occasions what the service was, uh, what its mandate was. There was lots of misconceptions, obviously, because people read a lot of, uh, a lot of novels. 
Um, I would start by saying that Canadians should feel confident that the service works very strictly within the rule of law, and that's that's not a that's not a hyperbole at all. We we face challenges and. Uh, legislative uh, underpinnings, and we're ruled by legislation, ministerial direction, and policy. Now, as a domestic security service, fundamentally, although we have a foreign intelligence capability, as a domestic security service, we are not only bound, but we operate within that by creating policies and procedures that help us support those uh, legislations. And, you know, we get into disagreements with the courts about nuance within legislation, and that discussion goes on with law enforcement as well. So I would want Canadians to know that the service has is, is, runs uh, under law. Um, it uses its imagination and initiative to collect information that is sensitive. And what's different between the collection of uh, security intelligence uh, and law enforcement or criminal intelligence is that we are looking for that 10% nugget that you cannot get through open source reporting. So if you look at open source collection, and I have a tremendous respect for the amount of information which can actually be obtained not by surreptitious means, not by covert means, but just by, by uh, careful research of, of open sources and, and databases, the uh, what's missing in that is the hallway conversation, the conversation that occurs in an office, the conversation that occurs in the basement of an extremist member who's plotting a, a particular attack. That is not available in open source information. You need people doing very clever very sophisticated work in, in the case of CSIS, working primarily with human sources, but also some technologies to collect that sensitive information and get that information to the right place at the right time. And that goes, as you said, it goes across the spectrum of, of terrorism, espionage, sabotage, uh, proliferation issues. Uh, you use the word subversion. CSIS, of course, doesn't uh, doesn't do subversion anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but many things that would have been categorized under subversion at a, at a particular time in the early history of, of CSIS and the RCP security service now is captured under the heading of uh, terrorism and extremism right because you know the objectives are quite similar when it reaches that stage i'm glad you you raised the whole open source issue because of course you and i are just all two retired guys right now and, and what we read about what's happening is derived entirely from open source, although I think we read it with a different eye, given that where we worked. The other thing you raised, Dan, which I want to pursue a little bit, is this notion of foreign intelligence. Now, uh, Canada is an outlier in that we do not have a dedicated foreign intelligence service. Now, CSE does do foreign intelligence, but SIGINT only, signals intelligence. And I, I worked as a foreign intelligence analyst for 17 and a half years, uh, focusing on the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. CSIS has the ability to collect foreign intelligence under what's called Section 16, which you're well aware of with the CSIS Act. But it, somewhat <laughs> annoyingly, if I can use that term, when the you know the powers that be created CSIS under the old security service, as you mentioned back in 84, when they gave CSIS a, a foreign intelligence mandate, they said that it could collect foreign intelligence in the infamous phrase within Canada which seems kind of like an oxymoron if it's foreign hawking collect in Canada. We could, but that's a whole other issue. We won't get down. A lot of people, Dan, are talking these days about the need for Canada to have an independent foreign intelligence service. First of all, what do you think they mean by that? And given your experience, and you, you and I both worked in Section 16 over the years, what do you think would be the best way forward for Canada if, if the decision is made to actually create one? Do we create one from scratch? Do we alter CSIS? Do we... I mean, do we get another body that's that's somewhat analogous? I mean, you just can't decide on Friday to create a foreign intelligence service and start it up on Monday. So what if, in fact, the government decides this is a priority at some point? And I, I doubt that it will, but you know, stranger things have happened. 
What would be the best way forward for Canada to have a foreign intelligence service? Well, first off, thank you for raising that issue because I think that the concept of foreign intelligence at this particular time in our history is probably one of the most critical national security and national interest issues of the day in Canada. And uh, You're also correct that Canada is one of uh, a handful of countries in the world that doesn't have a particularly dedicated foreign intelligence service uh, in the likes of CIA, um, uh, MI6, or uh, the SIS, or the BND, and, and a host of others. Uh, Canada made a very conscious decision uh, back in the 70s and early 80s when they were transitioning the security service of the RCMP over to the CSIS. They made a conscious decision that Canada would not create a service dedicated to collecting information abroad uh, relating to Canada's national interest. Incorporating it into the CSIS Act was a good idea uh, at the time, for the time, uh, but that time has, in my humble opinion, has, has passed. What Canada lacks in its ability to collect foreign, uh, foreign intelligence independently of our allies means that we're utterly reliant uh, or effectively reliant on our close allies to provide us uh, with uh, foreign intelligence. Now, you mentioned that Section 16 does allow the service to collect foreign intelligence in Canada, and there are mechanisms to do so because mm -hmm. there are foreign representatives in Canada. However, it's extremely limiting. Right. Uh, and limited uh, because of the in Canada clause and, and because of the technology, it has become even more limiting in the last few years um, on the uh, on the uh, interpretations of the federal court. So the simple answer to, to, to that great question, uh, the simple answer is to remove the in Canada clause of Section 16, and that would enable CSIS without any changes uh, in structure necessarily would enable them to to task out the collection of foreign intelligence abroad. Um, the challenge to that can be anything from cultural, uh, that people who are in CSIS were not necessarily originally hired and trained to collect foreign intelligence because there is a difference in the approach right. and the perceptions of collectors and analysts and what you do with foreign intelligence. But the other alternative, of course, is to create an organization. And I've, I've had personal experience with that over the years. There is significant interdepartmental opposition to creating a new organization. Um, there's a little bit of what I'll call sort of empire building uh, and resentments between departments, competition, if you want to call it that. So the easier answer, certainly in the short run, is to simply take out the Within Canada Clause um, within the CSIS Act and allow the service to develop that capability, at least as an interim measure along the way to developing a more robust capability perhaps through the creation of a new organization. But remember, any new organization uh, is a, is a resource, uh, is a resource uh, cost that has to come from somewhere. And, mm -hmm. you know, in light of the pandemic, uh, the government likely doesn't have a lot of extra money to throw around to create a new organization. And it is, it is an investment. You're, you've got people, you've got selection and training, you've got housing, you've got technology. Uh, then you have to build relationships with other organizations. So there's a, there's a lot to build up from scratch. And in my opinion is it's not necessary to build it up from scratch because I think the service is actually quite capable of taking on that role. Obviously, I've got a bias. It is capable of taking on that role with certain uh, sectors of the organization. It would even be a resource cost to the service to allocate resources within uh, to, to, to dedicate to foreign intelligence, but they do have an internal capability right now that could be reallocated to that. To, to that. So you know, you've got the easy, easier answer and you've got the very difficult answer. And I think given the, the political climate and economic climate, 
I think the the uh, the eighty percent solution is probably the way to go. But it is certainly a way I believe Canada must go. Not surprisingly, Dan, I, I agree with you 100%. So full disclosure, I worked very closely with CSIS on Section 16 while I was at CSE. I won't go into details, obviously, how and why, but uh, the service was very good at collecting it at the time. And you're right, developing a an agency from scratch is simply a no-go area, especially at the end of a pandemic where we've been, I don't know how many trillions of dollars we're debt and into right now. But, you know, you mentioned that you, when you're in Toronto region, you were already busier given the resources you had. I mean, throwing on a foreign intelligence mandate, wouldn't that push CSIS over the edge, you think? Well, let me add to, the, to, the, to my previous answer that while the service has this limited Section 16 mandate, it's, it's quite limiting. Section 12 of the Act elects, allows the service to collect information regarding threats to the security of Canada from wherever they emanate. Now, again, there's a nuance in the reading of the legislation, but certainly in the application, um, CSIS conducts a lot of activity abroad. Right. Let's, let's, you know, and, it's, and that's publicly known. They conduct a lot of activity abroad, um, but it must be tied to Canadian national security. Now, Canadian national security doesn't have to be a direct threat. It can be an indirect threat. So there's a lot of flexibility in that. Mm -hmm. But I've argued for the last number of years that rather than have this nuanced discussion and have to you know, be really clever about how you define operational activity abroad, it would be simpler to just allow the organization to collect intelligence abroad under the rubric of foreign intelligence, which would allow it to expand the scope of what they collect mm -hmm. more in the, in the line of national interest than in the line of national uh, security threat. That's where the main difference is. Because as I said, Section 12 allows the service to do um, what it needs to do to protect Canadians um, you know, and, and our national defense. Now, in the case of resource allocation, you're absolutely right. You know, If you said to a domestic region, you're now authorized to collect foreign intelligence outside of Canada, well, that would mean deploying people who are in domestic regions outside of Canada. Right. There's other ways to slice that. Uh, there's resource allocations that can be placed um, more centralized that can be used to deploy people abroad specifically for the purposes of collecting foreign intelligence in the domestic context meaning in the geography of canada the collection of information to support national security uh, threat mitigation uh, can occur from anywhere in canada to anywhere in the world so a a person in toronto can be collecting information which doesn't actually have anything to do with toronto it can have something to do with somewhere else in canada um, but it's emanating from somewhere else. So often in the organization, people will be in one region and they'll go conduct activity in another region with the support of those regions. They collaborate quite, quite closely together. Um, and occasionally they'll go collect information inside of Canada under Section 12 because the threat relates to national security issues, national security challenges. So again, lots of flexibility. The, the challenge in places like Toronto and, and, and Montreal and Vancouver is that uh, regional leadership obviously wants to make sure, first and foremost, their geographic space is, is the one getting the attention as, as it needs to for the threats that, that, uh, that uh, focus on those areas, but they're responsible to support national programs. So those, those priorities are not established regionally, they're established nationally, and then regions are responsible for their patch, but they're also responsible to help where they, where they can in the bigger program activity. So if the program activity requires that you send somebody to country X to, to, uh, to work with an ally 
that then they do that. So there's a lot of that flexibility exists within the regional offices, and and so we train people uh, accordingly to respond uh, both domestically and, and occasionally abroad. When we do work abroad, it's almost always with allies, it's, right. it's with partners that right. we work with and support them. So there again, we leverage those collaborative relationships with a view to supporting our national security, and it also supports the aims and objectives of our, our allied partners as well. I like how you framed it, Dan. You, you used the term national interest. That kind of gets around this distinction, as you say, between security intelligence and foreign intelligence. The, the, this is information that's going to help Canada on a variety of fronts, where it's strictly the traditional definition of security intelligence, i.e., you know, threats left from terrorism or espionage versus foreign intelligence, which it's helping Canada understand what foreign actors are doing so we can develop better policy. So maybe we need to go in that direction. And I think you're right. You know, we do have an international region um, in, in headquarters. This, you know, this is the region that takes care of our foreign deployments, et cetera, et cetera. So it probably would be doable. But I'm, I'm, the cultural thing, I guess that remains to be seen. But I do agree with you that this is a much, much better solution than going back to, to square one kind of thing. Uh, last question for you, Dan. Like like me, you're retired. You hung on a little bit longer than I did. But, um, you know, I guess dating back perhaps to your to your days in the military, you're now heavily involved in something called Project Rubicon. Talk, tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> um, uh, it's called Team Rubicon. Oh, and, my apologies. Uh, my apologies. <laughs> yes, no worries. Um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm laughing because I, I left in 2019 and uh, you know, a number of people asked me, oh, what did you do in your, your retirement? And I, I like to say that the first uh, two months of my retirement, I did nothing of communal value. I was I spent a lot of time hiking. Loved it. I loved being alone uh, with my, my rucksack. You know, maybe sometimes a good podcast. But after a couple of months, realized that uh, I, uh, I have a short attention span, so I needed to, uh, to get myself busy again. And I, I came across Team Rubicon, which is originated in the United States after, a, after an earthquake in Haiti in 2010, founded by a couple of ex-U.S. military members. Uh, that group grew quite large in the U.S., started in Canada in the, uh, in the 20-teens. And uh, I, I stumbled across them uh, online, and it is a group made up, uh, I'd say in Canada it's 50% veteran. Um, and veteran can mean anybody who served in the military at any time. Um, and in Canada, it's about 50% veteran, uh, a good number of first responders, so a lot of firefighters and paramedics and the like, and then uh, civilians. And the U.S. is probably closer to 70 75% veteran. And uh, this group is, uh, is a volunteer disaster response organization. They uh, focus In Canada, we focus what we like to call our, our primarily low-attention disasters. So those communities that are impacted by significant events, hurricanes, floods, and the like. And we go in uh, working with usually partner organizations in the community. And we, uh, we help homeowners that have been particularly disadvantaged homeowners. We use a social vulnerability index to assess who we can best assist. And we help them get their homes ready after they've been damaged or, or nearly destroyed. We help them get their homes ready for um, for renovation effectively. So we go in to uh, locations where there are vulnerable individuals or uh, individuals who are, have critical jobs that, that they need to get back to. We'll go in and we'll uh, help uh, disassemble damage, uh, remove debris from their homes, get them ready to go back out there. We also do other things. We, we work with uh, Meals on Wheels during the pandemic. Uh, we have ongoing requests uh, to help with other uh, charitable organizations here. We've done a lot of work in the last year in uh, the near north in Ontario with Indigenous communities. Uh, during the pandemic, we helped set up food distribution systems 
that were could then be turned over to these communities when the communities were in lockdown. So these were communities that were quite fully locked down. Uh, we would go in and help with food distribution for a number of weeks. And then when they came out of lockdown or they were easing their conditions, we would uh, we turn it over to them. So very rewarding. Uh, I think I was on about six operations last year. I'm the uh, deputy administrator here for the National Capital Region in Ottawa. And uh, I'd say in Canada, we now probably have 2,200 across the country. And we have a few hundred here in the uh, in the eastern Ontario area, we've got metros uh, all across the country, and it's a growing organization. It's been extremely rewarding. That's fantastic that you uh, you could take the boredom of your retirement to do something really <laughs> meaningful uh, to help other Canadians. So, Dan, listen, I want to thank you uh, not just for joining me on the podcast and and, and for your service to, to our country, both at CSIS and with Team Rubicon, not Project Rubicon. And I, I look forward to our, our, our further exchanges. It usually involves a beer at your place or a beer at my place. And uh, thanks for taking the time today. It's been a great pleasure, Phil. Thanks very much for having me. That was my conversation with Dan Fonin, former CSIS employee like myself. What do you think about what he had to say about CSIS as an organization and more narrowly about the whole foreign intelligence mandate? Hmm, really interesting. Love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content want to get more, go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You get a free daily digest. It's also a link there to my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, the History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation of the Present. Selling out fast. Better get your copy soon. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe.